Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode at Product Search. Um we have a very special guest today. Um he's been a bit difficult to get hold of because of his busy schedule, but finally glad to have him here and I'm sure everyone listening in will have a great time. Um and this one especially out for product managers um because we have a product management expert with us here. Um Mo Ali who's worked in product leadership roles at Bell Labs, Apple, Loblo Digital and a few more. He's also been a product advisor to various companies including IBM, McKinsey, Pearson Education and more. And currently, um he's the founder and CEO of a well-renowned product training institution called Product Faculty. Um and Product Faculty basically offers product management training for product managers and leaders from world's top firms including Amazon, IBM, Slack, Google, Facebook, McKinsey and they've trained over 25,000 professionals. Um so pretty excited to have you on the podcast mo excited to be here and uh, excited to get started and it's actually 2500 not 25000 that's uh, uh, we'll, we'll get there someday yeah I, i'm absolutely sure with the pace that you guys are going you're going to get to 25000 in no time i'm sure by the time i call you All to right. my next episode in 6 months you guys would have gotten there um so let's start mo um i know you're an expert in product management and, and everything product um but there has been a topic that you've often talked about and you've also written about and that's product strategy right and product strategy is uh, is a terminology that's often been missed that's often misused in startups and companies and often by product managers that are usually the owners of it so i'd like to understand from your perspective um what why is product strategy critical to any uh critical to any successful product management practice um and what is it that what exactly does it mean um and why is it important to have a for companies to have a well defined product strategy yeah that's a great question when you like google product strategy or you look for books to read there's many amazing books out there that you can read to help you uh, get better at product strategy and when you read these books you will hear things like this you're going to hear that good product strategy is about having the best talent or it's about network effects or things like chain link systems or a big brand or great employees yet why do we continue to see products that fail from companies that have big brands great network effects amazing employees that set big goals and they still fail can we think of some of these examples i mean google plus mm-hmm. linkedin stories right and i can go on and so you know if pro- if you if product strategy isn't about this what is it about right how can you uh, figure out if something is successful and it's a very very broad topic but really what what i define product strategy as and and the area that i think is most important is making sure you're working on the right stuff and really what we're going to dig into today is really going to be around determining this initiative that you're currently doing or you're thinking about launching how do you know it's going to be successful right if it's not about network effects if it's not about big brands if it's not about employees if it's not about working harder what is it about and and defining success uh, whether it's 0 to 1 or even 1 to 10 you've been around for a long time but you're not finding it to be successful that's what i I define product strategy as it figuring out what that is. Okay. And how do companies typically determine their product strategy? Is it something like I'm assuming that it's not as easy as kind of having a template that you could follow. 
and you know there are various factors that determine um, you know depending on factors such as what industry you're working for what is your business model um, and the like yeah so actually i think it's simpler than that when you think about product strategy whether you are a b2b product manager or a b2c or an internal pm uh, really it, good product strategy comes out to this it's don't compete contrast instead against the biggest complaint so i'll repeat oh, that again wow. don't compete yeah it's like don't compete forget about zero to one like forget about the blue ocean red ocean don't compete contrast instead and what do you contrast instead the biggest complaint and if there is no big complaint against the thing that you're building it doesn't matter if you're an internal pm a data pm a consumer pm a b2b pm you're going to struggle right let's apply this simple line to the examples that i mentioned don't compete contrast against the biggest complaint so let's take this lens and look at why google plus failed when you think about google plus the the problem or the need for connecting with other humans is very large. It's inevitable to need human connection. So the need for a social media network is important, but still Google Plus failed. It failed because there was no real complaint against Facebook at that time originally, right? Like Google Plus, for those that don't know, was Facebook's first, was Google Plus was Google social media network. And I know we don't like Facebook. A lot of people may not like it. But at the end of the day, Facebook was doing the job fine. It allowed you to connect with your friends in a, in a strong way. And, and there was no big complaint against it. This is the similar reason why Facebook has been trying to launch a LinkedIn competitor for many years and not succeeding. Because LinkedIn works fine. It allows you to connect with people in a way that makes sense. And there are many initiatives that they've tried to go into the segment and it hasn't worked. That's one example, right? Let's take another example of LinkedIn stories. I don't know if you guys remember, but LinkedIn and Twitter stories, you can see your stories and they disappeared in 24 hours because it's great for retention, right? And they, they ended up shutting those products down. Now let's look at the, the simple line that I say, don't compete, contrast against your, the biggest complaint. Again, let's go back to Instagram stories. It was working fine. There was nothing that people didn't like about it as much, right? It's like, okay, like it's, it's, it's doing the job. Why do I need another LinkedIn? Well, give me a compelling complaint that is going after. It's not. And so it doesn't matter if LinkedIn has all the resources in the world. They've got a big brand. They've got resources and network effects. If there's no big complaint against the existing way of doing things, you're not going to be successful. So that's why it's so simple. It doesn't matter if you're a B2B product manager, a B2C product manager, internal PM. We train a tremendous number of internal PMs. They work on tooling that are used internal to the company. They work on dashboards. They work on many different things. And they always ask me, hey, like, this is not relevant for me. I'm not, I don't work at Google. I don't, I'm not. Like, I'm not a consumer PM. My internal stakeholders, they just have to use what we've built. But I'm like, wait a second. If you build something and there's no big complaint against the existing way of doing things, the existing way of doing things internally could be Excel. It could be an intern. 
right? It could be some other tooling. If that, if, if there isn't a big complaint, you're not going to get adopted. You might be able to twist arms and get people to use or try to implement it. But when your boss isn't around, no one's going to use your tool and they're going to go back to using Excel or the intern. And so, so internal PMs have to hold themselves to the exact same standard of external PMs of really doing proper discovery to, to get to the bottom of the biggest complaint. And if that doesn't exist, you're going to have lackluster growth and you're going to have really boring, you know, you could, you could market a lot and get some traction, but it's not going to be fast growth. So that's a very interesting point you bring up, but one of the questions that let's say a Snapchat PM might have for you is that Snapchat, Snapchat came when, even when there was no complaint against Instagram, right? So what about products that are kind of not really competing, but end up creating a category of their own um, for a certain industry. So for example, when Facebook was there, I mean, I can't recall to be very honest if there was an issue with Friendster or MySpace because, you know, I never used those products to start with, but I, I'm just kind of thinking about the model that you've shared with us right now and thinking about what about products that are truly trying to reimagine how a service is delivered, even though there isn't let's say, you know, a glaring mistake in their existing product to start with. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking about Facebook, I'm thinking about Snapchat, even though Instagram was there. And the only differ differentiating factor that Snapchat brought was these kind of, you know, disappearing stories where you could share a memory that didn't really mean you have to kept it as forever, but something that could, you know, be a, a perishable memory, if you might, if you say so. And then also like, for example, right now, what we're going through, right? There's nothing like Google was the king of search, but you know, AI or like, you know, OpenAI has, OpenAI and Bing have come up with this entire new way of imagining search where you no longer are, um, you know, linked to the top result, but also about just solving the problem that you're searching for in the first place. So, um, so yeah. Yeah, let's get to each one of those examples. Remember the line says, the, what it, the kind of the thing that I'm saying is don't compete, contrast against the biggest complaint. I'm not saying don't compete, contrast against your competitor's biggest complaint. Okay. The biggest complaint can be with a competitor or it can be with the existing way of doing things. So let's, do, okay. let's apply this, the two examples that you brought up, Snapchat, you know, what, that's an entirely new use case that came up, disappearing messages. If I look at, um, very young people that use Snapchat, not, not my age, I'm much older than that, but like if you are at that age, why do they use Snapchat? Well, and what's like, what is the big complaint that they have? Well, the big complaint that kids have and why they love disappearing messages is because they don't want people to know about what, what they're saying. They want the evidence to go away. So that is a big complaint against the existing way of doing things. There is no other way for you to get rid of disappearing messages. Like this is the only way, right? So, um, so if, if there is a, a big complaint against the existing way of doing things and you can create something that's brand new, let's take the example of open AI. Oh my God. Like how freaking annoying is it to be able to find results for things? It's good. Like Google is the best that was out there, but, but it's good that Google gives me accurate results or and then I have to search them link by link, OpenAI just gives me the results, right? So if I look at search and having to find results or it just gives me the answer, what's better? 
I mean, the, you know, I don't even know I had this complaint until I tried something and I'm like, wow, this is so much better than the existing way of doing things because my end goal is getting a result. And yes, before I knew the realm of possibility, Google seemed to have been doing a really good job of it. But now that I have this other thing, which actually gives me the answer, it does it even faster, you know, uh, I'm using that now. So you see how, like, you know, there is a latent uh, complaint around how quickly you get the results and, and OpenAI just giving you them. And there's also the generative nature of it. There's just, like, so many other things. Like, ChatGPT is solving, like, any one of the many, many industries that ChatGPT is solving for is multi-billion dollar industry, and it's doing it in a much more phenomenal way, right? I use it for like maybe eight to 10 hours a week, right? I have it open here. I'm just like, tell me, it's like, ask it and gives me all the criteria. Um, and so, but, but the existing way of doing things would be really laborious, looking at results yourself and trying to figure out what's, what's right, what's wrong, what's not. So uh, that's how you would apply it to, to literally anything. Yeah, so no, that's very interesting. And you so, so complain here doesn't really mean in the more traditional sense to complain. It's more abstract than that. It's being able to try and find and poke holes into what an existing business model might look like and see where you can kind of find an opening and, you know, maybe, you know, insert or kind of, you know, showcase your own product. Um, so that's very interesting. So, yeah, I guess, sorry, just to cut it off. Go back to the complaint. You can go to different users, and I bet, like, if you had tweens who are, who are using Facebook, and you got to the bottom of speaking with them, you would have got. They may would have had. They might have had a complaint of, "Hey, like, my message history is here, and I don't want someone to know." Right? That could have come up as a complaint. But now that they've used it, they're like, "Wow, this is really hiding all of my history, and this is great." Right? So yeah, yeah those those things can come up from discovery as well. Yeah, yeah. So that's very interesting, and, and I and I want to kind of just keep extending on this product strategy example, or sorry, this kind of um, uh, this phenomena, is that oftentimes PMs are blamed to exist um, in a bubble of their own, right? Uh, that even when you end up creating product strategy, that is somehow decoupled from the long-term and short-term objectives of the company. And it's oftentimes also separated from the business objectives of the company, right? Um, so how do you create product strategy that incorporates those very important uh, you know, objectives and is kind of mindful that how does your product and how does your product strategy evolve over time to be able to incorporate these short-term and long-term objectives? Yeah, so this will go back to your goals and a current state assessment, right? Depending on how you're currently doing, you can figure out how much you want to reinvest in which area. As an example, if you are already growing very fast, uh, that growth is going to be coming because there's already a contrast in the market, then what you're dialing up on, on what you're doing currently versus long-term, it uh, can be different, right? You're, you know, Google, this is going against kind of what is a lot of, uh, we all think innovation is great and it is, but Google just shut down Area 120. It's mind boggling. I was just talking to one of our past students 
right before this call is the lead product manager at Google. He's like, this is unreal. Like, this is Google's innovation arm. Literally, but about an hour ago, I was talking to him. He's like, I cannot believe Google shut down Area 120, which is like their core innovation machine, right? So how much you and invest why? in... Like, what was the rationale? The, the rationale is current state assessment, right? Okay. They are uh, way costs are way higher, and they have to reduce those costs. And something that it was just unfathomable, unfathomable. Uh, you know, he was just telling me, and I don't want to mention obviously who he was, but he's saying the entire culture has changed. Twenty percent time is gone. Fundamental changes are happening, including their innovation arm being shut down. So when you think about like the typical advice, oh, take a portfolio-based approach, invest ten percent in long-term innovations, the rest on this, and that, that's all fine. But it starts with a current state assessment. I'll give further guidance to that as well, right? So uh, it starts with a current state assessment on how, how fast you're growing right now. If you are growing really fast, you've got extra revenue, then sure, invest a bunch of it around 10% on moonshots and crazy ideas that will help you grow existing, uh, you know, grow your new product faster than it is now. That being said, if you are not growing and you're in an area of trouble, then you need to figure out where you sit on your complaint and contrast meter and, and put your resources there. Here's what happens. Um, we all like, we all just want to work harder and do better work, right? The, the, the gut, the gut reaction when you're not doing well is, let's work longer hours, let's do more things, and let's see if that can turn the situation around. And oftentimes it doesn't. You have to be more strategic. You have to be more strategic. You got to take the time out. You have to slow down and think about what will allow you to find something that contrasts you that goes against the big complaint and making that shift is necessary if you want to start to grow faster right so how you invest in to go back to your question to summarize this how you invest in short-term or long-term growth forget the advice out there that hey 10 percent on innovation 90 percent on core that's okay if things are going well. If things aren't going well, and you're in a situation where you have slow growth, you got to go back to the discovery mode, think through your strategy, and figure out, is there something that I offer that no one else offers? As an example, I'll give you a very concrete example. When, when Google Workspace, right? Google Workspace launched, which is, um, you're going back now about, I believe around 10 years. This is Gmail, uh, combined with Google Domain, Google Sheets, all lumped together uh, for workspace collaboration tools, competing against IBM uh, Lotus Notes, as well as IBM software and, and Lotus Notes, all these different things, the collaboration suite, right? When Google was going into the enterprise business, when it was all consumer going into enterprise, um, they had one thing that no one else had, that one clear contrast that went against a big complaint that no one else had, and just using that one thing, they were able to grow really fast and actually grow in an environment where they didn't even meet table stakes features with enterprise companies. So what was thought to be a table stakes 
when you're launching into enterprises, very strong admin capabilities, robust authoring, robust security, all that. They have basic security, they have basic administration, they have almost no reporting, literally no reporting. Imagine yourself into enterprises, but they had one thing that no one else had. And what was that one thing? Live collaboration. Uh, right? So if you remember, go back to the original days of, remember using Word, I'm sending, Abdul, I'm sending you a version 1.0. And then I'm sending you 1.1. I'm sending you 1.1 with more comments. And I'm sending you 1.1.2, a 10 p.m. version. Oh, <laughs> like how problematic as that is that? Yeah. And because they had this one, they went, that is one contrast that solved a big complaint. They were able to sell to administrators without the other requirements. Imagine you're selling to administrators and administrators are like, Hey, I like this, but you don't have admin capabilities. You're selling to an administrator. You don't have security. You don't have this, you don't have that. So Google says, yeah, we don't. Where else can you get collaboration from? Hmm. And administrators are like, well, we can't get anywhere else. Okay. Well, you have to buy what we have. Right? So what I'm saying is if you're in the situation, which a lot of startups are in, Hey, we're struggling. We're not growing. Things are tough. You know, what you need to do is figure out your contrast, right? That will allow you to, to, to stop working super hard. And, and actually, no, you always have to work hard, but you work smarter. I always, I always like to say like, I've worked at companies that are two employees to working at Apple with a hundred thousand employees. And trust me, every single team is complaining about one thing. We want more resources, but more resources is rarely the answer. Yeah. Oftentimes being more strategic can, can get you the results and it's hard. It's not easy. There, you're right. There is no template that you can follow and it takes deep thought. There are templates that will help you, but every model is wrong, right? It's, they're just kind of directionally correct. So yeah, that, that's a long winded answer to the question. Hopefully. No, no, that, 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 that helps a lot. And, and I think that this kind of, this approach of thinking about it in contrast makes it applicable to any business model, right? Like for example, regardless of whatever business model you're in, um, whichever industry you're in, um, this, this, this simplified, not simplified. It's, it's, if you think about it, it's very deep, but this, this model allows this mental model allows you to be able to think about any problem and kind of deal with it in this perspective. So that's very helpful. I'll add to this, sorry. The, uh, what does the world, what does the world look like if you don't have a contrast in the market and, and that goes against a big complaint? What does the world look like? The world is going to look like this. You will be building so many table stakes to your heart's content and your customer is never going to be happy because they're going to need more table stakes. The minute you have a contrast, you stop saying no to, to table stakes. So think more strategically, right? What do you want to do? Do you want to put all of your limited resources to build the infinite table stakes, which no buyer is going to pick you because you met table stakes. They're going to build, buy you for your contrast, right? So yeah. the world of, so if, if, here's what happens. Here's the language you need to see. If in your organization, you're continuously pushed 
oh, our competitor has this. We've got to do this. We've got to do this. We've got to do this. That's a problem. That means you're, you have, you're giving your customers no reason to really buy you. And all you're doing is prioritizing what they have. And it's, it's, but if you have that contrast that goes against a big complaint, like Google collaboration, and I can mention so many examples. We can go into Shopify Plus, how they launched, and they got much bigger than all their competitors with one-tenth of the features. I call it 10x features, not 10x products, right? And they're much more successful. So what you have to do as a product manager is decide. You go the existing path, continue to work hard, and try to build table stake things or do what you'll be doing better or, or truly try to innovate and find something that's a 10x feature that contrasts you in a way that goes against a big complaint of the existing way of doing things. That's, that's so interesting. And uh, when you were talking about examples, I'm reminded of Notion and how they kind of completely changed the game of productivity, right? Um, and so, like, so if you think about Notion and what they did, you had these different tools that were catering to different audiences. Someone wanted notes, note taking, someone wanted, um, you know, tables that they could just, you know, use to visualize everything. Some, someone wanted calendars and you had these different productivity tools catering to different audiences and Notion came about and it had probably one and it wasn't able to beat each and every of these existing players in their own categories. But what they did was that, okay, we give you the ability to make or build anything from scratch and it'll be customized to how you want it. And we won't be dictating how you should be creating your productivity suit because we feel like each each to each their own productivity, right? Um, and they they've basically changed that game forever. Like almost everyone is now following suit. So, and had they gone after building the feature set that let's say Google Notes had, Microsoft Notes had, um, or any of those other players, they probably you know like you said that if you just build table stake features, no one wants that. It's about contrast. So yeah, so that's a great way to think about products and think about strategy. So uh, there, there was this one thing that I was thinking about, and I know that you've mentioned Google, um, and since you've also worked with, I'm sure you worked with product leaders who are working at Google. Um, what are some of the, like in your opinion, what are some companies that have great product strategy? Like how do they differentiate themselves? And you know, we all know these companies, but we kind of still find it hard to put or articulate what their product strategy exactly looks like. So I'd like for you to maybe talk about a few. I think looking at it at the company level is a little bit too abstracted, given if you think about Google as an example, it's very large. They've got a million different products, right? Or you look at Amazon too, they've got too many different products and so on and so forth. When I, when I think that you can tell if a company has good product strategy just by looking at their landing page. <laughs> So yeah, well. if, you, if you look at their landing page, uh, so the, the prerequisite to that is you have to be a buyer in that industry, right? If you are a buyer in that industry and you understand that industry and you were to go to the landing page, you could clearly see in their first opening line, so on and so forth, what is their contrast? And that goes against a big complaint that people have. And how are they? How do you believe that you're doing that, right? So, and 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 you know, so that's what I would do for a company. Google is too large, but if you look at even any one of the individual products at Google, uh, that's how you can do it just by looking at the looking at the landing page, right? So, can I go there? 
Okay, I see very clearly what it solves for. Um, and then just how does it do it differently than anybody else? And then do I believe it? Mm. Right? Um, that's what I would say. Oh, wow, that's such a... Such an interesting point. I've never kind of taken notice of it, but I am a very big fan of evaluating products through their landing pages and through their websites, because oftentimes like I have become such like, you know, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say like, but my bullshit kind of, uh, tracker basically sees if a landing page or if a product is trying to market itself very differently from what it actually is, then I start to kind of lose faith in it. Um, so, so, so thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that. And I know that, and, and, and one last question on the product strategy topic is that a lot of the times, some of the best companies are the ones that are able to pivot successfully. Um, that are able to understand how the market around them is playing. And you just gave an example earlier about how Google is shutting down, hopefully temporarily, um, one of its innovation or its innovation are, um, because it understand that, you know, we are currently operating in a market where interest rates are high, where, um, you know, they're competing with, a with, they're competing with, a with a player in search that they have never had to do so in the past 10 years, at least. Um, so uh, how do successful companies pivot, uh, their product strategy? Um, and what is your favorite example of such a pivot? Yeah, this topic of sustaining innovation is uh, what makes the job of product managers so fun, right? What, yesterday, what was a delighter is today table stakes, right? So if you think about the example of Google collaboration, they had a one year lead to it, maybe one and a half, two years lead. Now Microsoft has collaboration, you know, everybody else's collaboration, it's out there. So, um, so what, I, what I think about this is, Look, uh, innovation and pivoting to something new and finding your new contrast, it's necessary and it's inevitable. The world just doesn't stay static, right? And so the way I look at that is, you know, can you, um, once you see your growth is going down and you're doing customer interviews, you're doing discovery and you're finding that you're, you aren't really uh, growing as fast as you were previously, probably means your contrast is gone and you need to go and do more research and you need to take more risks, right? Uh, and companies that are able to do that successfully will grow. Companies that aren't, you know, will, will kind of you know, decay out. Um, and Google is, is at the transition point right now, right? With their, with, with Brad and seeing, you know, one ways you can search for results or you can just give me the results. And this generative AI thing, if it, it's, it's very powerful and like if it takes off, then it can replace Google, right? Um, and so it's good that they're investing in it because if they don't, if they're not focused, then, you know, um, there's going to be trouble, but, but really you have to sort of invest. Now, uh, what are companies that have, that I think have done that really successfully? I think an iconic, iconic company that we're all familiar about with, which we don't really appreciate as much, um, because it's at such a scale and arguably they've lost some of that magic recently, but, but they did a really good job of this in the past was, um, Adobe Acrobat products, right? So yeah. going back in time, uh, Acrobat, Adobe was sold in DVDs, right? And they used to cost $1,200 per, per, per DVD. And you had this license forever. And that's how the selling model was. And 
they saw the change coming in the market with, with being able to buy subscriptions and making those changes. And, and today we take that for granted that you can just get a subscription for a cheap price. Go back to 10 years ago when Adobe changed the entire company from shipping DVDs to a subscription model. That was a hugely strategic move. They did that very, very well. It had to entirely change the way the whole company operated. Imagine your product marketers that were designing what goes onto a physical box. Now are building stuff what goes onto a website to sell subscriptions. Your salespeople, your vice president of sales that goes to a company and says, hey, how many licenses do you want? Okay, our deal, this is a $10 million deal. Now has become a $10,000 deal a month. So that fundamentally changes all aspects of how a company works from marketing, sales, operations, and how successfully Adobe was able to do that at scale and be successful against all the inertia that was going against it. I think that was really, really impressive, right? Now, that's what they did well. Now with Figma and the rise of Figma, maybe they've lost some of that jam and they're starting to kind of lose it. This is why this innovation muscle and being able to continuously find a contrast and live up to it is so hard. This is what makes our job so fun because we're always innovating. Software comes, software goes. If you aren't humble, if you're not egoless, like it doesn't matter how successful you are, you can be gone tomorrow. And just I'll leave this one last stat with your with your audience. This this really kind of blew me away. Like just 77 years ago, I think 88% of the Fortune 500 companies, if you're in the Fortune 500, you're the largest company ever. Just 77 years ago, like almost 90% of them are, don't exist anymore. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's pretty pretty phenomenal, right? Pretty crazy to see that. Yeah, no, that's, wow, that's such an interesting stat. And even like, for example, like, I love how, um, to be very honest, like, I think the fact that a lot of people thought maybe them acquiring Figma wasn't the smartest move or they paid too much for it. I think that now that Figma, you know, arguably one of the biggest players um, in design uh, is also as part of their suit is, a, is, is an, on their part, continues their legacy of, you know, building. It does, yeah. Create creative tools, so I, I think that was a very smart move. Um, on the pricing of it, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's that's definitely what Disney that Disney ended up doing, and what Bob Iger from Disney, um, you know, became famous for doing. Uh, maybe something, some maybe a conversation on him sometime later. So, um, so moving forward, I also would like to kind of you know because you work you worked with you know product managers and PMs from, um, you know, from renowned companies like Google and Facebook, that some of the funds that we just talked about, um, and also consulting firms like McKinsey um, and others. And I would like to get your take on how has the adoption of using data changed over time? So basically how has, um, you know, their data, how has data strategy become an important part um, of a product manager's job, and how do you see see that changing continually still? Because you know, data ends up becoming like you know the, the different problems we've had with data over the past you know let's say 10, 15 years. First, we didn't have uh, much of it. Now we have too much of it. 
um, and being able to kind of understand it and use it to your own advantage. Uh, I feel firms and companies that are able to do that really well are the ones that are going to be able to, you know, differentiate themselves from the competition. And like you said, you know, be able to be able to contrast yourself to the complaint. You have to first understand the complaint, um, you know, and, and in an age where there's just too much of information, what is your data strategy matters a lot. Yeah, look, I, I love this line from Julie Zoe, who's a former VP of product at, at Facebook. And she said, um, and she said, diagnose with data and then treat with design. Wow. Right? Diagnose yeah. with data and then treat with design. And I think that says sets the balance best because you're right. There was the old world where we didn't have any data and we didn't know what to do to having now you can measure everything. Literally everything can be measured. And yeah. it's gone too far to a point where, you know, you can be in a room looking at a dashboard which has many different aspects on it and everybody looking at any part of the dashboard can have a different point of view on it. And so really, you can really lie with data and tell any story that you want. And so really, data has can tell you directionally where to look but you treat it with solutioning and designing. And designing could be anything. It's not just you know the actual prototypes. It's also just understanding more about your pain and customer pain that's going on. So um, you know, the, the long answer to this is, um, I think that product managers obviously should be data informed, but not just blindly driven by it. And there is, uh, and I maybe have an even more counter view on this, is that I still feel that there's uh, more like, there's quite a bit that can come from your intuition. Those big decisions, I, I look at like a lot of even decisions that we've made with personally with product faculty and in my past at Lawblood Digital at Apple, not just some decisions that I made, but the company has made. You know, those key decisions, a bunch of times were, were creative and innovative and from someone's intuition. So that maybe the data wasn't all there. So there is still a big place. I, I'm still a big proponent of creativity and and uh, intuition that comes from building a strong product sense. Because this, from my own personal experience, I've seen like very, very successful products come out of that aspect, obviously failed ones too, but somewhere we didn't do a lot of research. Like, I mean, the research happens because we're just immersed in the industry and we know, but we made some, some intuitive decisions based on our product uh, gut and product sense that were phenomenally successful and others where we we did analysis to our heart's content and they've totally flopped. So I am still a, a proponent of, of intuition and it having a, personally I've seen it have a big impact uh, in the success of products. No, and, and to be very honest, I kind of align with your perspective as well. Um, working as part of a data company, I can come, I, I understand what's, how you can over strategize on data, but it also like being able to have a sound data strategy is probably one of the best things you can do for your product team. Um, going, moving forward, uh, and I know we are short on time, so I'll just very quickly go through the rest of my questions. And I'd be completely remiss if I didn't talk about AI in product management. Um, and I was listening to this podcast, um, you know, I was listening to Lenny's podcast and he had Marley, who is a product AI product leader at Meta, um, and they talked about how, why product managers will be AI product managers in the future. 
Um, and I want to get your thoughts on that. And I also want to get your thoughts about how you think AI will impact the product manager role in the next five to 10 years. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Marley is actually, uh, she uh, does the capstone project at product faculty. So she's a oh. kind of coaching our students through, through that aspect of things. Uh, look, I think that it's evident with, um, with even just how powerful generative AI is and how this is going to transform every aspect of product management. Um, I'm generally an innovator, but no technology has excited me more than this. Personally, like crypto, like I, I own crypto, but I'm like, aside from owning coins, I don't know what else value this is giving me, right? Like I don't yeah. know what the necessary thing is. I'm sure that the, the, this identity thing is, is makes sense, but real practical application, what we can see with generative AI, uh, I think is going to transform the way that we work. And, and we're already seeing companies like Coda implemented, uh, and Uther himself wrote a really great piece, which I'll, you know, I think you can reference in the show notes of all the different entire stack of product management and how AI can, can help. Um, I have it open all the time, ChatGPT, and like as I'm running my strategy docs, I'm like, okay, I, I have this question. I just asked, I just asked OpenAI, like I asked ChatGPT, and it gives me some reasonable directional things to think about. So I, I am more bullish than others, and it will totally transform the way that we do product management. And if you're in a situation now where you're thinking about it, like one of the key things that PMs have to do is they have to be abreast of trends. You, most growth comes from being at the front end of an S-curve. If you're not in, in, like totally understanding generative AI right now, you're missing a massive trend that will entirely change your job. So don't be scared of it, embrace it, and like spend a lot of time getting good with it. In fact, in my entire team at Product Faculty, they all have ChatGPT subscriptions. It's part of their OKRs to like learn it and use it. So definitely very bullish of how powerful it's going to be. And forget 10 years, I think next year, we're going to be using a lot more than we think. But how is that going to impact, like for example, um, I, I, I understand the usage of it, but do you think that over the next five to 10 years, how is AI generally going to impact the job, right? I mean, I understand, you, 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 you mentioned ChatGPT, there are like now five other tools apart from ChatGPT that have sprung up lately and I've started using and all of them are great, right? The results are a bit shoddy, like for example, on and off sometimes, but it's just the early days of the internet, right? You are looking at what is possible and what is possible is probably going to be probable by tomorrow, um, you know, and that's kind of excites me a lot as well. I was looking at this tool called Galileo.ai where you can dictate, where you can write, how you interact, where you, where you just write text like you do with ChatGPT and it'll, bring, it'll basically design screens um, and UI uh, on what you have written in text. So that's amazing, right? I mean, it's going to end up impacting almost, I feel like almost every role, at least in the tech industry, um, so I want to understand how is that role going to evolve in the next five to 10 years? Because I feel like, for example, I personally also use it for some of the more, uh, you know, redundant role, redundant responsibilities like, oh, I want to write user stories. I know what to write about. I can just give it instructions and I can get it in the format that works for my team. And I do no longer have to work on, you know, 
write in the exact right format because I know that there's someone who can do that uh, monotonous job for me. So apart from it being, uh, you know, helping you become more productive, how else do you see it? Be, you know, how else do you see it impacting product manager role, product management roles? So if you, yeah, what what, it, what it's going to do in terms of uh, productivity is a massive use case that's going to happen. But the other thing that is the way it's going to affect product managers and how they scale, scope and build and think about their products is. Uh, there's going to be uh, a massive increase in customer expectations in a very short time. So what is a delighter today with the results that you see with OpenAI and generative and just generative AI generally um, is going to be embedded in all aspects and people are going to expect it. As a very tangible example, uh, I, I know uh, very well the Canva is a multi-billion dollar company um, they are, you know, they, they do like uh, graphics and images, you know, let you build it very quickly. I know the the, uh, the generative AI PM at Canva, and he said like, are the requests that he guessed today for what he has to build has entirely changed overnight because of ChatGPT. So it doesn't matter where you work, whether you work at Notion, Coda, Canva, comparative customer expectations are significantly going to increase. And what is delighters today is going to become expectation about a year from now. So the actual, aside from helping you be more productive, customers are going to expect more, which means you have to think about where this technology can help all aspects, as is this, this, this lead working at Canva. In fact, he, he met with OpenAI. You know, so, so so that's what's going to happen. It doesn't matter what you're doing, whether you're doing a, a tool that allows you to build graphics to different types of technology, your customers are going to request it. And you better figure out how to, to incorporate this to make their lives easier and more magical. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm also um, infinitely excited about, uh, I, I'm, ex I'm both excited and I'm also a bit, um, you know, like, <laughs> I don't want to say frightened. I feel you. But... I'm also like, you know, I, I'm not so much so that I feel like they're going to replace our jobs. Like I feel like humanity has always like, you know, humans have always been very uh, skeptical of technology and automation replacing them. And we've just seen, you know, over the past 300 years, uh, ever since like, you know, the agricultural revolution, sorry, um, the digital revolution, we've seen that that kind of, uh, that, that kind of, you know, alarm bell being rung every single time. Um, and it turned out to be false because we just had different jobs to do. Uh, even if those jobs, even if, for example, we got replaced, I am more kind of, um, you know, skeptical about the misuse of such a powerful technology. So for example, that can come about. So, you know, when we discovered nuclear, um, so this like my, my scare is more affiliated with that aspect than it is with, technology replacing us and also AGI, but you know, I feel like we're still some time away from AGI. I also want to get your take on, and this is a question I often ask any product leader that I have on the show about what really makes a good product manager in your opinion. And I know that this might sound like a simple question, but you probably, there are layers to this question that you'd like to address. And also what advice would you give to, you know, 
current product managers, aspiring product managers about upskilling themselves. Like I'm often thinking how, like, you know, should I do courses? Should I do like, I personally, like, you know, should, should you be doing courses to keep yourself up to date with different, um, you know, frameworks and different technologies and different trends? Um, should you be, uh, you know, or should you be, you know, having a, or how, or how critical is mentorship, right? Um, or how do you find one? So I, I'd like yeah, I to also, about. yeah, I'd also like to get your perspective on that. Yeah, so I'll answer the first part first, which is how do you, what, what in my definition is a good product manager, leader, executive, all of it, right? So the difference that I see between like product managers that, that I really like, I think do very well in their career versus those that possibly struggle is at the end of the day, like, you're not going to be successful if your product isn't successful. Okay. doesn't matter what they, there are different philosophies on this, but my clear philosophy is you have to be competent. If you're not product isn't doing well, then you need to do better. Right. And what does better really mean? How do you get there? Cause everyone has the same cards that are dealt to them, right? Or different cards, but you got to deal with it in the way. Look, at the end of the day, those PMs that are, that have low ego, right, and are able to elevate everyone and the best voices in the room, get to the best answers. We all have egos. It's very tough. We all want to be right. But if you can suppress your ego and really get, get to the true outcome and think about causality and getting as close to that as possible, you're just going to significantly increase your chances of being successful. Why is that? Because most features fail. Our customers are just not as excited about things as we are. So if you don't have low ego and your ego is involved and it always gets brushed up, you're going to try to cover that up and you're not going to have successful products just by the numbers of it. So being super low ego, elevating the best voices in the room allows you to get to the best answer to, to truly get to causality and figure that out in your product. And this is necessary because the odds are stacked against you the facts dictate that most features fail. So you gotta have this. That's sort of the trait that I think quicker people get comfortable with this. Uh, that's good. Now, how do you learn? Um, I think that there is, um, you, you know, should, so f first question is, does it matter if it's course, books, mentor, all of that? Uh, I'm a very big believer that you have to dedicate a, a, a good chunk of your life on learning right like so let's say if you have uh, if you're working 50 hours per week because most people probably do that you know you're not working 60 but hopefully you're working 50 ish right you dedicate a minimum five hours of that working time whether it's five hours whether it's 10 hours or something you're dedicating a good percent of your time that you've dedicated for work to building competency to get better at your work Consider that part of your work, right? I set it at 10%. Actually, mine's a lot higher because I'm in the training field. But I think for all PMs, at a minimum, they should think about roughly 10% of their time should be dedicated to improving their core skill set and being more competent. What does that mean? Okay, well, be more strategic. I think, um, I know that you, you might ask this question later, but I'm going to answer it now. Say, hey, I always get this. So what are the best resources to learn product management? I say, look, of course, subscribe to all those newsletters and, and that's all fine, okay? 
that will help you a little bit. But actually being more strategic about it is going to be significantly better. So what does that mean? Build yourself a learning roadmap. Assess your capability. It sounds very simple. Assess your current capabilities. How do you rank yourself on analytics? How do you rank yourself on your product sets? How do you rank yourself on UX? How do you rank yourself on strategy? Figure out the figure out this roadmap. And instead of taking this constantly wired and reading a hundred newsletters and just doing so all these different things, reading books, all that, figure out like this area is what I want to get better at. Okay, strategy. What is it gonna take me? Okay, there's these books, these courses I can take, and I want to be top 10% of strategy. Okay, now I'm done, let's move on to something else. Right? And then really taking that strategic approach is a lot better than subscribing to I see these lists all the time. Oh, these are the leaders to follow. Yeah, great, follow those leaders. That's a good thing. But also that's very, if you if you want to get results that everyone has, do what everyone else is doing, which is just randomly spending time reading stuff and following leaders and just being haphazard or what. If you want to get results that other people don't have, do what other people aren't doing, which is being a lot more strategic and focused about your learning, right? So figure out where you, stand on the core competencies of being a PM, give yourself an assessment uh, and, and really kind of be incredibly diligent. Question yourself, what is the best way I can gain this skill set? This could be a course, this could be a book, it could be talking to a mentor, it could be reading articles, podcasts, but, but really find the most efficient and have low ego around this, really truly genuinely know that, okay, this is the fastest way I can gain competency in this skill set so I can move on to the next one. That, that's sort of what I would say in terms of building a learning program. No, that's incredible. And honestly, like that gives me such a great mental model to think about how I want to learn about things. They're like in, in this day and age, there's just so much to learn and so many people who are an expert on almost everything. It kind of, you know, goes back to the basic, like you talked about, think about what subject matter you want to become better or good at. Um, and then, you know, start working on that rather than being distracted by, you know, random subjects and random topics and random, um, leaders even, um, in, in something that, you know, might not directly benefit you at all. So, you know, thank you for sharing that. And I know you've said, you kind of hinted at it, but I'd love to know your favorite resources and these favorite resources can be podcasts, can be books, and they don't need to be about product management. Like this part of the question or this part of the uh, in the entire episode, I've reserved for for things that are not necessarily about what you do. It could be about what you have fun with, right? What you like, enjoy doing. Yeah, and I, this answer is going to be totally not satisfying, but I'm going to say it anyways. I don't have favorite resources that I go to. I have a learning roadmap, literally. Like I look at my skills in terms of product management and my business, and Okay, this quarter I'm focusing on this and this, and then I go and read every single book in that category, mm -hmm. or take the best courses out there. Or to totally, this is why I don't have general resources. Of course, I follow leaders and do that, like listen to podcasts. But really, my approach is a lot more strategic. As an example, for strategy, I read like ten books on it. Right, copywriting. It's really important to the faculty to know how to copyright. I will find the best experts and take their courses, read their books watch videos, but also assess, really assess them. Hey, are you really the best? Because if you're the best, 
then I know you're going to teach me something, right? Like, I don't want to waste my time. So taking that sort of um, ROI investment and, and really, like, figuring out the, the core competency you want to improve for that quarter and then just doing incredible analysis on one of the best resources that are the most efficient and then just go all in on that for that quarter. And, and that's a much more fruitful way of doing things than just reading many different things and being half baked at uh, you know at all of them. So yeah, so I, I'm not going to get an example out of you. <laughs> You're not going to get an example. If you give me a topic, I will I'll give you the, the twelve best strategy books. Copywriting, I will give you the, those ones. But look, there's many different lists out there. Follow all, all of them and you'll be good, right? Like it's lists coming up all the time on LinkedIn. Follow these leaders, follow these resources. Sure, like I read their material and that, but that so, doesn't work really. That's just kind of wasting time. It really, so I'll, it helps. I'll, I'll try to get an answer out of you through asking a different question. And this is, I was just reading Tim sure. Ferriss's book. Um, it's called Mentors. And he asked rather than asking what's your favorite book because it puts the speaker on the spot and they don't really like, you know, the people usually don't really have one favorite book. They have different favorite books in different areas that they like to read. Um, so what is a book that you'd like to gift, you know, your friend? What is that one book that you'd like to give to a friend? Um, okay. So I would say there's a book by uh, uh, Tina Sealing. Actually, I've gifted this a few times. Tina Sealing is a Stanford professor and she has a book that says, um, 21 things I wish I knew when I was 21, something like that, title something like that. I think that is a, was a really kind of game-changing book for me because it challenged a lot of my assumptions and it really kind of helped motivate me to figure out what is my passion and how to make sure I stick on that as opposed to doing some random things. It's not about product management. It's kind of about entrepreneurship and finding your passion, but I found that uh, to be, to be uh, you know, very valuable. The author is Tina Sealing. Title, I might have mixed up a little bit, but you'll be able to find it if you Google that. Yeah, you yeah, know, thank you. And I'm kind of glad my product management read list is a lot, and I want to like kind of explore uh, books in areas other than that. So that. Uh, thank you so much, Mo. It's honestly, honestly been a pleasure. Um, I enjoyed this conversation a lot. I got to take away so much, and especially since I'm working directly, it kind of, you know, at times I have guests that I learn a lot from, but this is with you, I've been, I'll be able to apply so much more in the day-to-day -day work that I, um, you know, that I operate in. And um, so thank you for having us and we hope you can have, you can come here again. For sure. Thank you for having me and uh, really uh, admire that it's uh, now 6 a.m. for you or 5 a.m. and you're still uh, alive. And so, yeah, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for doing this. Really enjoyed it. You used to ask such insightful questions and happy to be back whenever you guys uh, will have me back. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have you back very soon when you have 25,000 in six months, 25,000 students in six months. Uh, um, all right. Thank you everyone for joining in. Um, I hope you loved this episode. I'm sure for all the product managers out there, this is going to be an absolute gem. Um, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Leave comments about how you thought this episode played out. We'd like to now also call more guests that are in the product management um, you know, in the field and they're like product management leaders just to be able to, because one of the requests or one of the feedback that we had was that we'd like to know more about the lives of product managers. So this is an effort to do that. Um, thank you everyone for listening in. Bye.